Amen. Amen. Uh, this is an exciting and an exhausting Sunday for me. Um, more exciting than exhausting. It'll be, all be well worth it. Uh, it's amazing that uh, how, I just got to say for a moment, how this text is providentially where it is. I did not plan for this text to be here today. Um, we had a hurricane week, and uh, I took a couple extra weeks that I had planned, and uh, we had a guest speaker. And so today, we are installing an elder, and we're talking about elders. I love how the Lord directs the preaching of his word. Uh, and so I do want to share with you that this is, a, is an answer to prayer for me from day one. When I was first asked to sit down in front of a handful of existing members, uh, one of them still here, Polly was at that, that meeting, um, and they asked me uh, what, because they were at a place of, we're either going to sell this, this uh, close the doors and sell this building, or we need some new life in the body. And so they had this young, somewhat young seminary student, young to them, uh, seminary student who uh, they asked, what would you do if we call you as pastor? And the first thing I said was, we need to establish biblically functioning elders. That has been my prayer since uh, there were many other things I wanted to, but uh, that was first and foremost. If there was going to be any longevity, if there was going to be any health to this church, we needed leadership in the pattern that Scripture has laid out. And so um, it is appropriate and fitting as we look to install an elder, uh, pastor, we'll get into those distinctions in a moment, uh, that we cover this text this morning. So, if you're here for the first time, we're glad you're here. Uh, this is, we're a church that works through text in an expository manner, meaning we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So you've joined us uh, in the middle of our study of 1 Timothy. And so in this study, um, we've handled a lot of things so far. This morning, we're going to focus on elders. So... This will, prom this will primarily be directed toward men, uh, just putting that out there. However, all members of this church, and if you're a, a visitor, this is a great, or regular attender, you're considering membership, this is a great family conversation, but every member here, I want you to look at and examine these characteristics in the men of our body, because Lord willing, we need more men to labor in elders as elders, and we'll look at deacons next week. So as members, we want to examine and recognize this in men in our body and, and recommend. I see that in, in this man and encourage those. It's so easy to criticize when we see the, 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 the faults in people, but uh, it, we need to encourage one another when we see maturity, um, especially as men leading the church and leading families. Uh, and everything we're going to see here this morning is praiseworthy and exemplary for any Christian. So just because we're, we're, I'm not talking to ladies, to you directly, or to um, teenagers, or to men who have no aspiration to ever be in an office, know that everything we're going to talk about this morning honors God. And everything that we're going to look at this morning is what makes a mature believer, not just a good elder. And so this will be building on what we looked at la last week, that men and women are one in equality, but distinct in role and function within the church. And so men are created from the beginning to lead, and they're wired to lead. And so if you're going to have a well-ordered church, that's Paul's whole desire in writing to Timothy in Ephesus. If you're going to have a well-ordered church, you must have well-ordered leaders. And the health and sustainability of a church depends on the maturity and stability of its leaders. The health and sustainability of a church depends on the maturity and the stability of its leaders. We've seen healthy churches that last for decades because they're led faithfully. And we've seen churches rise and fall and crash and burn because of arrogant, unfit leaders. And so, um, I know this does not come naturally to all men. Um, this is not one size fits all. However, if you are a man, I'm speaking to you this morning. You are called to lead your family. You are called to lead in your marriage. You are called to lead your children. And if you are not married, find a younger man and lead him to Christ. Lead him in Christ. There's plenty of them around here. I don't care if you're 18 or you're 80. God has created us to set an example 
for the men and women around us. And so there are going to be some challenges to men this morning. And at the very least, you take a younger man under your wing, you keep him out of trouble. So everything we're going to talk about this morning, there's nothing radical, there's nothing hard to understand, but it is hard to find. And it's going to be convicting and it's going to be challenging because we're not going to use any difficult concepts here this morning. But when we look at this list of qualifications, when we look at the call to be an elder, it is heavy and it is weighty. And very few men live up to it, but yet they are needed. And so uh, we're going to work with that and deal with that this morning. So uh, opening your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there'll be one in front of you. Um, and yet you don't yet have to put the uh, text up on the screen. Uh, uh, there, there'll, there'll be one slide this morning. I'm going to show you all of the, the, the text on elders. Uh, and I want you to go there in your in your Bibles, um, I'll take the training wheels off this morning. So, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with, the con- with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as we open your word that is inspired by your spirit and points us to your son. That Not that we would wrestle against it, but that we would submit to it and conform to it. Because through it and in it, we become conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, what a weighty call and responsibility you have put on all men to lead, but particularly for those who lead, govern, shepherd, oversee local churches. I pray for my brothers who labor all across the globe this morning. I pray that they take the weight of shepherding and caring for Christ's sheep to heart. Pray that they not take lightly the call to protect sound doctrine, to protect unity and purity and peace. Pray for the elders of this body. Pray for Jesse and his faithfulness the last few years. Pray for Brett and many years to come. Pray for myself. We'd continue in wisdom and perseverance. We would not trust in ourselves but rely on your own strength. And Lord, I pray, as I have been for years, that you continue to stir the desire within men to be elders and deacons, to teach and lead and serve your body because you love her, because we want you to be glorified, and that everyone would see Christ through us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, verse number one. Uh, We're going to dive right in. This is a trustworthy saying. This is a phrase that uh, Paul uses several times in the pastorals. So I want you to see the last time he mentioned this is a trustworthy saying. Verse 15 of chapter 1. Same book. Verse 15 of chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What is this saying that Paul takes a moment to separate out from everything else he's saying? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Notice the connection here. He begins his talk with elders, getting you, you know, one of those things where like, I'll talk for a while and I say, hey, look up here, pay attention. He wants them to pay as close attention to the elders as he does the gospel. That Jesus Christ comes to save sinners. Because it is the gospel 
that our God, perfect and holy, took on flesh to walk among us, to redeem a people for himself. He is risen and reigning as the head of the church, but on earth, those people are to gather. And he desires that those people be gathered in unity, in love, in fellowship, holding fast to the confession of their faith because we represent Christ on earth. This is a trustworthy saying, and how does a church do that? There is one head of the church, but the church is not a headless monster on earth. There are under shepherds who are given authority, who are given tasks on earth. Why? We are a placeholder. The little card on the plate that says reserved for every seat says reserved for the true and living God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And I'm here making sure as best I can in my feeble efforts that his place is as it should be. His place is prepared for him. And so the God who saves sinners gathers sinners in places called churches. An assembly of the people of God. And just like in the home, he puts a structure in place so that his people are cared for and built up and protected. So we cannot divorce the call for elder, overseer, pastor, from the trustworthy saying that it is Christ who saves sinners of whom I am the foremost. And men, if you have any aspiration toward leadership, if you have any aspiration toward pastoral ministry, if you cannot say, I am the chief of sinners, you have no business. Amen. So, not to be divorced from that, and the other faithful saying in chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this, to this end we toil and strive because... We have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So these trustworthy sayings, Christ saves sinners. He puts an order in place in his church, and this is our hope, that we persevere in him because he's our Savior. The gospel is completely infused within the structure and oversight of the church. Christ came and died for a bride, and that bride is represented in this room. And that bride is represented in faithful churches down the street, across the country, and across the globe. And he cares for his bride so much, he told us in John 10, that no one will snatch them out of my hand. I'm the door. No, one, no, no thieves can climb over the wall and steal my sheep. As under-shepherds, how can we expect to have any less concern and care for the sheep of Christ? And so why is this important? I'm going to camp out in verse 1 a little bit here. Because this is not a job. This is not some honorary title. This is a calling to shepherd the flock of Christ. That's why we lean in here. That's why verse 1 is often skipped over, but I'm not going to. So normally when we read lists like this, we, we come down, we do a, a word study on, on each list and all that. Um, we need to fully understand verse 1 before we get to the list. So I want to look at aspire and desire. First, aspire. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, aspire. This word in the Greek means to set your hand on, to reach out for Something that you are looking toward that you, that you want to grasp onto. If you aspire to the office of overseer, it's a noble task. Now right away, if you're sitting here, and again, men, I'm still primarily talking to you. If you're sitting here and thinking, well, I don't aspire to be an elder, so I'm going to turn this off. Or turn my ears off. Let me ask you, why not? Why should you not aspire to care for the sheep of God? Why should you not desire what God calls noble, literally a good work in the Greek? 
Why not? If you've been a Christian for a long time, you've been a member here for a while, why do you not desire, aspire to caring for God's people? Not that you all will, but you ask yourself, why not? Why do I not aspire to be an elder or a deacon one day? I'm content just letting other people lead. Do I not think it, it's important? Do I not care what happens to the flock of Christ? Why do you not? Why would you not aspire? Let's go a little deeper. What would your family or men, what would your family or friends say if you were weighed against this, this list? Would they recognize in you that you're a godly man, a godly example? It's a good question. And you don't aspire to it because you need the recognition, because you think you deserve it. You aspire to it because you want to honor the Lord and you want to see his sheep thrive. You want to see them protected and taught and built up. That is why men aspire to it. That's why if you desire it, you desire a noble task, a good work. Let's be honest. I'm going to talk about a problem with men for a moment. Men don't like work. Now, we have a love-hate relationship with work. We enjoy, once we do it, and when we, we complete a task, we enjoy feeling fulfilled and built up. But ever since the fall, work is not easy. So we hear work, and our flesh says, nah, I'd rather sit on the couch. Here's the problem with men today. Men do not want to take responsibility. So I'm going to lean in here for a moment. We, many of you, are afraid of responsibility. Most men do just enough to get by, but they don't want anyone to depend on them. They don't want to have to be responsible. They don't want the buck to stop with them. I'm fine if you do it, but I'd rather sit in the back seat and just ride. Let's continue being honest for a moment. We have no shortage of people who are willing to spot problems. We have very few people who will step up and fix them. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard in the church, we should do this. If you've told me that, my response is like, are you willing to do this? Well, I didn't mean me, but someone should do this. Men, I have these conversations all the time. Hey, do you need any help with anything? Yep, I need, I would love for someone to do this. There's a difference between being responsible and being responsive. Men have no problem being responsive. Let me tell you the difference. A responsive man, when asked, can you set these chairs up? He says, sure. He responds to the call to set up chairs. But a man who takes responsibility will say, I'll make sure those chairs get set up every week so you don't have to worry about it. That is a difference. Men are easy being responsive. Yeah, I can do a task and just clock out and go home. But as you look around the room, I mentioned earlier, when I got here, there was a handful of elderly people. Praise God what he's done in the past six and a half years. Just trying to be faithful to his word. But as we grow, we will need faithful men who will take ownership. Because if you're here for the first time, I want you to hear, this is not my church. This is not Jesse's church. This does not belong to the deacons or the elders. It belongs to us only because we are members. This is our church. If you are a member here, your family has benefited from the teaching, from the fellowship, from the love, from the service. Is there a desire to take responsibility, this, this noble task? Too many guys are content assuming someone else will do it. Now, not every man is called to the office. Not every man will serve as elder or deacon. That is absolutely true. But as we go through this, is there anything on this list, men, 
that you do not desire as a Christian? Let me take this a step further. Is there anything on this list, women, that you do not want in your husband? Even if you are never an elder or deacon, everyone is called to serve, co-labor, minister. The Christian walk is not a spectator sport. But if we're honest with ourselves, we are too influenced by our culture. We have a spectator culture. Guys are trained to be armchair quarterbacks. Guys who've never thrown a pass in their lives, sitting on the couch, complaining about what someone who does it professionally on TV is doing. And they do the same thing when they get to the church. This is a problem. So now that we talked about the aspire and the desire, let's look at the office of overseer. Uh, This in the original language, overseership. It is a, a function of oversight. Uh, the word that gets translated out of this or used often is a bishop. And so it's not a bad word. It's just the, the connotations. There, there are different types of church polity. An episcopal structure coming out of bishop. Uh, the, the distinction here is whether you think someone has oversight over many churches or in the local church. So if you're in an Anglican or Episcopal system, it is oversight over the bishop has oversight over many churches. We would say that we have bishops or oversight, but it is only in the local church, and I think Scripture bears that out. So you've got bishop, uh, overseer. Other two terms we're familiar with. Overseer is a function. Um, Pastor or shepherd is also a function. That's why our title says shepherding, overseeing elders. Shepherding and overseeing are functions of the elder. We'll get to elder in just a moment. Shepherd. Uh, we, we know the picture. The Bible's full of the imagery of sheep and shepherds, of a shepherd who is called to care for and feed and protect the sheep like David, who will lead them to green pastures, who will, who will throw stones and kill lions for their, their safety. But also in Psalm 23, that the Lord is our shepherd, and we look to him who leads us beside still waters, who prepares a table before us, who corrects and guides us. And then the third term, uh, these terms are used synonymously and interchangeably within the scriptures. The third term is elder. So you've got overseer, which is a managerial function. You've got pastor, which is a, a care and protection function. And then you've got elder. This comes out of the, the Jewish system of the honorary leaders of families and clans who were given responsibility to make decisions. And so this idea that um, existed from the beginning of God creating a nation, these elders are brought forth in the church. And so when we speak of elders, we are speaking of a man, an older man, who has the charge of oversight and shepherding a particular flock. So we see this as one office. The most predominant term in the New Testament is elder. Those elders are spoken of as ones who shepherd, care, protect, feed, guide, discipline, and those who oversee. So let me give you an example. Just to kind of put this in mind. If you've ever seen ancient Near Eastern shepherds, um, it's usually not one guy with five sheep. You know, that, that happens. But typically what will happen is a city or a village will come together. They will bring their, their flocks together. And so you'll have several flocks that are, that are eating together. And all of these shepherds who are responsible for their particular sheep will go out to pasture together. And if you watch them, there'll be scouts who go out first. The shepherds will, will go ahead so they can see where the, the best grass is, see if there's any... Uh, enemies or anything like that. You'll have some who will be among the sheep and behind the sheep to make sure none are strayed or, or, or weak or need to be bandaged up so none get left behind. And then you'll have some who go up on high ground who may be uh, some ways off, but they want to see if a wolf is in the distance. They want to see if a lion or a bear is coming up. And so this structure is not a top-down structure. It is men who are among the sheep, who are within the sheep. The, the, the pastoral role is being among the sheep. The overseer role is being above the sheep as far as, 
as far as rule, but how do you get perspective? You get to higher ground, and you make sure that you can see all of the flock and what is best for all of the flock, but you also must be among the sheep. Know them. They must know your, your voice. And so that is what we see as the elder. I want to kind of lay that before we get into all of these, these qualifications. Is that helpful? So I have people ask, well, what's the difference between an elder and a deacon? We'll talk about that more next week. Um, but when we say elder, this, this afternoon, Brett is going to be installed as a pastor here. We are recognizing God's call on his life. The office is elder. But in that role of elder, he will be tasked and charged and expected to oversee and to shepherd. We're used to saying pastor, and that's, and that's, that's fine. Um, that's a very intimate, relational title, you know. Um, but we'll see in just a moment how these are interchangeable. So I want to look at several of these texts. So Acts 14. Uh, I sent this out to our members last week. This is the call of the local church. Notice Acts 14, 23. Go back a few books right after the Gospels. Chapter 14. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, first thing, this is not optional. This is consistent throughout the New Testament. There's elders in every church. This is not something that's good for some churches and some for others. There must be elders in every church. That's what they did. With prayer and fasting, that's what we do. It's not my strength or, or my idea to add another elder. We as a, as a church, we pray for this. So that's why we've been telling you for months that we're looking toward bringing Brett into this position. Pray for him. Fast leading up to this so that we in the church are in agreement. And then they committed them to the Lord and in whom they had believed. We surrender ourselves before the Lord. We do everything we can to make sure the right man is in the right role. And we say, Lord, he's yours. We're going to labor together. We're going to trust just as you draw, drew us to yourself. You are sanctifying us. You will equip us for the work. And the men step up because by the time you get to Acts 20, uh, which we'll reference a little bit later, we read earlier in uh, intercessory prayer, there are elders, plural, in Ephesus just a few years later. Let's look at the next text. Uh, so we're in Timothy. Let's go to Titus. So keep a finger in Timothy. Um, let's go to Titus. Here's the, the parallel passage. The pastorals. Paul writes to two pastors, Timothy and Titus. Two local elders. He gives the same list of qualifications, but notice the terminology he uses. This is Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put remained into order and appoint elders in every town. Again, every town. We have a deficit of faithful leaders in the church today. As we talked about intercessory prayer, Jonathan mentioned earlier, and he's right, so many churches mess this up. Elders in every town. As I directed you, if anyone is above reproach, this list should sound familiar. The husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, used of synonymously here, one who is charged with oversight as God's steward, must be above reproach. Same language we're going to look at at 1 Timothy. Must be. And he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to uh, rebuke those who contradict it. So many people try to make a distinction between these terms. Paul's using the same list in the same context, calling elders to be overseers. Now, let's go to 1 Peter. A few more books to the right. 1 Peter chapter 5. It's my personal favorite of the elder texts. Before we get to 1 Peter 5, he says earlier, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. What is the example that we have in the church for an elder? 
Notice the two terms in chapter 2, verse 25, that are applied to Jesus. For you were straying like sheep. Here's the shepherding analogy. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Who's that? Jesus. When we look to Christ, we see those functions in him. The function of oversight. The function of shepherding, which are entrusted to elders. That's why when we get to chapter 5 of 1 Peter 5, notice how Peter connects all of these. So I exhort the elders among you. He's talking to those in the office. As a fellow elder, Peter is an apostle. He is one of the, the, the three that are on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw and walked with Jesus intimately before and after the resurrection. But after Christ goes to heaven, how does he see himself? I'm an elder in a local church. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Remember what I said earlier, the gospel is not divorced from the office of elder. Peter sees his charge to be elder because I saw Jesus Christ on the cross. And I will see him in glory one day, and I will stand in his name, in his church, until I see him again. What does he tell these other elders to do? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Elders, shepherd and oversee. And then what does he do? He gives a similar list of character marks or character qualities. How do you shepherd and oversee well? Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So men who are called to the office of elder, who will be called pastor, who are given oversight responsibility, we are shepherds only because there is a chief shepherd, only because he came before us, only because he died for us and redeemed us, only because he sent his spirit to indwell his people that they might gather in his name, and only because he gave us a desire and made us Overseers. Here's the last one I want you to look at. Go back to Acts 20. I know I'm having you jump around, but uh, that's the most jumping around we're going to do all day. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Notice all these things come together again. This passage begins in verse 17 where Paul calls the elders. What does he tell the elders? Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. Here's the shepherding analogy. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The gospel sets up the church and sets up the elders. Elders oversee and shepherd. So we see three calls on a man to the office of elder. Number one, the aspiration. We'll just do them in no particular order. Man who aspires to this. The designation here in verse 28, the Holy Spirit made you overseers. God must call you to this and prepare you for this. Now the rest of our time is going to be spent in examination. The rest of the body should be able to take these characteristics, to move through this text and see, yes, I recognize this in this man. Yes, I see and recognize in this man. The aspiration of the individual the designation of the Holy Spirit, and the examination of the body of Christ. Uh, and in, in case you think I'm drawing a lot out of this, Richard Baxter, one of my favorite pastoral books, the Reformed Pastor, writes a masterful work on this one verse, Acts 20, 28. The heart, the motivation, the call, and the application of the overseer. I commend it to you. Um, so, let's get back to 1 Timothy. So now we can move out of my first point, um, and we're going to move quickly through these attributes here. I'm calling them marks because I like alliteration. Um, 
So, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in each term. I'll give you just some kind of high notes for each term. But what I want you to see here is that this, this list here is uh, cumulative. Not that everyone's going to be strong in each area. None of us are going to be perfect in any of them. But this is cumulative. You want, you want to bring all of these ideas together to paint a character picture of what an elder must be. That's the other thing I want you to notice. Must. Four times in this passage. He must be. He must be. He must not be. This is not optional. If a man is not qualified in any of these areas, he cannot be an elder. He must be. This is a high standard. And so admittedly, before we go, forward, before we go through this, Scripture goes to great lengths to say who should be in the office. But we're not told what we're supposed to do from day to day. We're not told what a meeting looks like. We're not told what an installation or ordination service looks like. We're not told how to come to decisions. The Holy Spirit has given us what is most important. That's the character. Outside of that, it's been left up to interpretation. So can you have a faithful Episcopal system? Yes. Can you have a faithful Presbyterian system? Yes. Can you have a faithful congregational system? Yes. Because it's the men in the office that is most important. You can organize yourselves in different ways, but there must be elders and he must be these things. Here's what else I want you to see. If you're here this morning, you may not even be a Christian, or you're here this morning and you never aspire to be an elder, these marks, everything here is good for every Christian. And if you are considering whether Jesus Christ actually does anything to people or has any, what, what, is there any value to following Jesus Christ? This is what his followers are supposed to look like. And this is what his followers will look more and more like over time. This is what Jesus does to people. He takes rebellious, selfish, wretched people and he turns them into, into slightly better, rebellious, selfish, wretched people who want to grow for his namesake, for his glory. Let's go through this list. He must be above approach, blameless. His, there are no charges brought against his reputation. This is the umbrella term. This is hovering over everything that's to come after. If a man is to be an elder, there cannot be a blame or charge against him in any of these following areas. Does not mean he'll be perfect. Does not mean he always meets this standard. But if one of these areas is out of line, he should not step into the role. Let's go down. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. In Greek, literally one woman, man, one wife, husband. Uh, there's much debate over this, this passage. Um, it doesn't necessitate marriage, but what it does say, here's what everyone agrees on, that requires faithfulness. He is a man who is devoted to his wife, who takes the covenant of marriage seriously. Because if he can't be faithful and devoted to his wife, how can he be faithful and devoted to the church? There is no room for infidelity, for unfaithfulness in the home or in the church. Let's go on. These, these next three kind of work together. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Sober-minded, this is an internal quality. This is a deepness of the soul. This is someone who's, who's, whose thoughts and affections are clear. He has control of his thoughts and affections. He is not moved by his urges. He is not drunk on his own pride or on his own self-deprecation. He is sober-minded. And so the other side of the coin is self-control. This is an external quality. The man who is sober-minded is in control of his actions. He's not just thinking and feeling according to, or, to, his, to his urges. He's not acting according to those urges either. 
He's not given in to those urges. He can control the behavior. The whole man is in agreement. He's sober-minded on the inside. He's self-controlled on the outside. He's not a slave to his thoughts or his passions. That's why he can be respectable. This respectable, this is a complete um, virtuousness. He is orderly in all things. His inside and his outside matches. Self-controlled, sober-minded, respectable in all things. This is a consistent man who's not one thing on the inside and another thing on the outside. He's no hypocrite. He also must be hospitable. And this literally means the love of strangers. So in those days, there were no hotels, um, no Airbnbs. If a Christian came to town, if someone was traveling, if a family member came in, you would bring shame on yourself and the whole town if you did not invite them into your home, which is, by the way, why the Mary and Joseph story is so scandalous. But if you're going to set the tone in the congregation, shouldn't your home, because men, your home is a reflection of your ministry, shouldn't your home be a place that people are, are welcomed in, that people feel at home, that they are loved, that they are made a part of your family? And this is the one I have seen most often neglected. I know pastors who pride themselves on, having, on being isolated in their homes. And this is my place of retreat, and I don't ever let people in, in my homes. I've heard pastors say this. Guys who care very much for theology and order and all these other good things, but my, my home is mine. But as Paul said to Titus, the overseer, he's a steward of God's gifts and God's grace. Who am I to say, well, the rest of this is God's, but this is mine. An elder must be someone who actually loves and serves people. All right, let's move on. Able to teach. So, um, it's interesting that this is the only professional quote-unquote, or clerical attribute here. Paul is overwhelmingly concerned with character, as he should be. There is one mark for the, the uh, doctrinal portion. Does doctrine matter? Of course. Not every elder has the same role, but everyone must be able to divide the word, whether it's in the pulpit, in a Bible study, or one-on-one -on -one in a coffee shop. You better be able to, you must be able to open the word and apply it. Uh, more on that later. Not a drunkard. Nowhere in Scripture is alcohol prohibited. Nowhere. But everywhere in Scripture, drunkenness is prohibited. Why? Especially in terms of the elder. Because if you drink too much, you are no longer self-controlled, you are no longer so sober-minded, and you're no longer going to act in a respectable way. If you become a slave to your passion, if you become a slave to too much of anything... If you can't control your own urges, you have no business leading God's people. Next one, not violent but gentle. The beauty of the transforming work of Christ is that the Holy Spirit takes the edge off of us. The Spirit works in us so that the fruits of the Spirit, this gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, is evident in us. We're no longer violent people. This, this violence in the original language is either with the tongue or with the hand. I think a lot of men think, that, well, because I've never hit my wife or I've never punched a man in the face, if I ream him out or if I scream at her in anger, it's okay. You're not a violent man with your words or with your hands, but you are gentle in all things. It takes a very strong man to be gentle in the face of adversity. Which is why the next one is here. Not quarrelsome. And to be honest, like the previous one, I mean, pastoral ministry can be contentious. It is trying. People are going to challenge you. People are going to frustrate you. It is easy to get drawn into arguments. But if you're an elder, if you're an overseer, if you're a shepherd... You can't get drawn into petty quarrels. You can't love arguments. You must love people. And humble yourself in those moments. 
Next one, not a lover of money. Why is this stated? Uh, We'll see more in chapter 5 because uh, teachers will be paid and supported in the church. Uh, Look at chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, verse 10. Uh, Many of you know this phrase. If you don't know anything in the Bible, you've probably heard, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So let's think about it for a moment. Why not love money? doesn't say vow of poverty. This is not loving money. Money's a tool. It's not a god. It's not a master. It shouldn't be. But if I love money, what happens for the guys who are big givers and the guys who are generous and I start to show partiality? What does that mean for the poor? What does that mean who can't give financial favors? What does it mean if I start handling the money and I really like money? One for me, one for you, one for me, one for you. This is a guard against someone who sees that money is a good gift from God and it's a tool to be used, but we hold it open-handed and we know what is his and we surrender it to him at all costs. So I want you to see Paul's heart as an elder going back to Acts 20. Acts 20, at the very end, when you see how he talks about his ministry and his love for them, look how he spends his time and not concerned with his finances. Many pastors today can learn from this. Acts chapter 20, verse 31. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. You hear his heart? I love you so much that every waking hour I encourage you, I challenge you with tears in my eyes. And now I commend to you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Why do we do this, pastor? Why do we minister? Why do we care for people? Why as Christians do we do this? Because we want to see people built up in the image of Christ. We want to see God glorified in people's lives. And to prove to you that I'm not in it for fame or money and anything else, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. I don't want to be a burden to you, so anyone I bring with me, I'm going to provide for them as well. In all things, I have shown that by my working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Elders are not here because they're expecting anything. They should not be. They must not be. We are here because we want to give of ourselves to the sheep. Let's move on, verse 4. Next section. These, uh, the management section here. Another must. In every, in every major chunk, he adds another must. He must, back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he must manage his own household well. With all dignity, here's that respect idea from before, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? This really doesn't require much explanation. Just let that sink in for a moment. If he doesn't know how to care for his own household, how will he manage God's church? So we transition from the kind of shepherding heart to the, the, the oversight management function that he has and the example that he, that, that he sets. How will you know if someone's going to make a good elder? Go to his home. Talk to his wife. Observe his children. Your first ministry, men, is in your home. Richard Baxter tells us, and he's right, that every man is a pastor in his own home. Every man has the call of oversight and management of his home and shepherding and care and instruction of his family. And all of these things applies to every husband and every father. Your household is your training ground for the household of God. Because in, in the, the little group, the little gathering in your home, if it is out of order, what type of leader do you think you will be in Christ's church, the household of faith? All the good qualities that make him a good manager in his home will translate directly to his management of the church. So there's a question that comes up here often. What does it mean that children are submissive? So I want to kind of land here a little bit. This, this might be helpful. Um, 
The word submissive here, uh, subject to commands, orderly, obedient. Uh, Okay, but what does that mean? Let's break this down a little bit. Children are submissive. How do you know if a man is a good leader in his home? If the children in your home are defiant, unruly, if they profane the name of the Lord, what business do you have raising the sons of God? If you can't control your own children, not that you're responsible for their sanctification, not that your children won't be sinners and and, and make mistakes, but you can tell if children fear and respect their father or not. If his own flock in his home is dysfunctional, he needs to attend to that first. And he should not be entrusted with another, especially the Lord's. Now, you can't guarantee your children's salvation. But we must, if you are raising them in fear and admonition of the Lord, they must be able to confess truth. Whether they fully understand it or not, you will have trained them and raised them in a way that that, that they can repeat and recognize what is true. You have no control over their their hearts. That's why in uh, Titus 1.6 where it says children must be believers, uh, same word in the Greek can either be belief or or, or faith. I think it's probably best rendered faithfulness. Essentially, they're not blasphemers. They would be able to, to tell you what the Christian faith is even if they are not regenerated yet. But if you've got a child in your home who curses God, who does not know the scriptures, who has not been trained in righteousness, you are not fit to train and manage the people of God. Again, you can't control their salvation, but you better be able to correct their behavior. We've all been to churches where the PKs, the preacher's kids, are the worst ones. There's a lot of PKs in here. I know it's not you guys. But I've been in churches where the worst, most um, obnoxious children are the pastor's kids, and they think that they walk on water. This man feels so highly about his outward ministry that he has neglected the ministry of his home. All right, let's move on to the next one. Verse 6. He must not be a recent convert. I love this language in the Greek. He must not be newly planted. So let's think about that for a moment. You don't build a tree house on a sapling. You don't take a weak green tree and build a structure around it. What do you do when you want to build a tree house? You get a big, strong oak. You want an oak that's, that's, that's withstood some storms, that's been through a few Florida hurricanes, that is not going to be tipped over when something difficult happens that is not going to be afraid of abuse, that's, willing, that, that's, that's used to being trampled on so that the house stands. Am I talking about a tree house or am I talking about pastoral ministry? Must not be newly planted because every one of these characters that comes before can only be seen over time. None of these can be seen in a new Christian truly. You need a man who is not a recent convert. How do you know if a man is planted in good soil, that he's not sprung up among thorns, that he's not on the rocky ground? He has roots. He has borne fruit over time. And when an oak has borne fruit over time and it is strong, it now provides shade and shelter. It can now feed and be a place of rest and comfort for others because he rests in Christ. And he has learned to rest in him for years. He has seen Christ's faithfulness in his life over time. He knows he can depend on his God. And so he tells you that you can depend on your God. He reminds you of your God's faithfulness. He is able to apply wisdom and discernment and manage his life and his family because he's made a lot of mistakes. Because he's stumbled a lot over the ways, but his God is faithful, and he desires to be faithful. So at the writing of this, the idea of a 25-year-old seminary graduate who's never worked a day in his life was unheard of. Because if you're a recent convert, 
you may become, and you get too much authority too fast, you may become puffed up with conceit. This Greek word is, it could also be translated cloudy. This great picture, you are so high and lofty up there, you young man with all of your recent knowledge that no one can touch you. No one can reach their hand up to you. You're far above everyone else. Young men, I would not have made a good pastor as a recent convert. You need decades walking with the Lord before you truly understand. The lofty one cannot be brought down to earth, but if you as a young man, it is everything our pride wants. Look at me, I'm 25, everyone thinks I'm it. And you think you're it. But if you shoot up too fast, with no roots, you're going to sway in the wind like a weak tree and maybe get ripped out of the ground. That's why so many young men leave the ministry every month. But roots, deep roots don't grow over time, over, overnight. They take time. That's why he must not be a recent convert. Last one, verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The devil has another, another tool the inconsistent Christian, the hypocrite. To be well thought of by outsiders is not a call to be a people pleaser. It is not a call to do things because the world is watching. That's not our motivation. Our motivation is to please the Lord whether the world is watching or not. That our lives would be consistent in our home and outside of our home. Above reproach among our neighbors and in the church. I love in in Charles Spurgeon's examination process, he would send an elder to your home, to your place of business, and to your neighbors to ask what type of person you were. How many of us, he did that for new incoming members too, how many of us would withstand that test? I know so many Christians, so many men who act foolishly like shallow pagans, and then they wonder why no one wants to hear them talk about Jesus. This is a call not to be a hypocrite, to be consistent in the church and outside of the church. And how often have those hypocrites been pastors who make a fool of their lives publicly and then create a barrier to the gospel? An elder must set an example in his home, inside the church, and outside as well. This is a heavy call, and few will be able to bear it. So I ask you this morning, pray for us. We need it. Pray for Brett. He will need it. Pray for Jesse. He needs it. Don't stop praying for us. So I kind of want to land bringing all of this home. Uh, Just briefly. Notice here, it does not say that he must be a systematic theologian or or wear a jacket or a robe or anything else. Does his doctrine matter? Absolutely. We can teach doctrine, we can't teach character. We need men of character who are willing to be taught and molded and challenged because our own Lord Jesus Christ, he picked little teenagers, commoners, fishermen, ruffians, and he built the church that we are standing on today on 12 little Jewish boys. Yes, absolutely. If you serve here, if you teach here, if, you have, if, you, if I've ever asked you to teach, you know we're going to talk about your theology. We're going to lean into your doctrine. But you will never be asked to teach here if we have to be concerned with your heart. So I want to close us in John 21. John chapter 21. This is the pastoral text, in addition to 1 Peter 5, that has been ringing in my ears, in my head, since I even considered the idea of coming here. It's one of the most beautiful pictures in all of the Gospel of John. Let me set the stage. Jesus Christ, the God of glory, took on flesh, lived a sinless life, and was crucified for the eyes of of his disciples. Peter, big and bold, talks a big game. 
until he denies him three times before the Romans, flees at the sight of his cross. Peter doesn't know what to do after Jesus dies. He hears the rumors of the resurrection. He sees the empty tomb. He's still confused. He's still ashamed. And what does he do? He goes back to fishing. What does he know how to do? Go to the end of John chapter 21. Here's where we find ourselves. Just before this, Jesus meets them on the shore and cooks them breakfast. When I was preaching through John, imagine Jesus makes you fish and freshly baked bread for breakfast. That would be the best breakfast ever. And when they had finished breakfast, verse 15, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now I want you to set this up. What is, what is fishermen, what is fishing an analogy for? What, what part of the Christian life? I'll make you fishers of men, which is what? Evangelism. So he's calling these, these, fisher, these fishermen, who he'll make fishers of men, this, these evangelists. We've already seen this morning, what is, what is pastor a picture of? Shepherding. So from the fisherman analogy to the, to the shepherd analogy. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Notice the standard. The standard is not, do you meet these qualifications? The standard is not, do you have all these doctrinal principles? That comes later. The standard is, do you love me? One time he asks him. Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. What does he say to him? Feed my lambs. You're no longer going to be a fisherman, Peter. You're going to be a shepherd. You're no longer going to be casting your net into the waters for fish. You're going to be feeding my lambs. Do not miss this. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. They're not yours. They're mine. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? How many times has Peter, Jesus asked him? Verse 16. Number two. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? You can, you can feel Peter sinking down into his skin. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is the call of the elder. This is the call of the pastor. You love the sheep because you love Christ. That is the essential first step. That is the fuel that will bring you every step of the way. And if a man desires the office because he wants to be out in front of people, because he wants the recognition, because he is prideful, because he thinks he deserves it, he disqualifies himself. Jesus makes it clearly to be a shepherd. You must love me and you must feed my sheep because you love me. This is the bride of Christ. This is the, the flock of God that he has brought back home. They are the blood-bought sheep and they need to be fed. And they need to be cared for, need to be protected, and they need to be disciplined by men who love Christ. And I ask you to join me in praying that he would raise up men in this body and everybody who love Christ enough to feed his sheep. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you just let this resonate in the hearts and minds of the men here this morning. That you sink into our pride, to our selfishness, through being content with being a spectator, to shirking our responsibilities, that your spirit would convict and motivate the men of this church and men across the globe to lead families and to leave churches for your glory. And I pray for women 
to be godly stalwarts even when their husbands aren't. To be fervent in prayer for the men in their life. To be helpers, encouragers, especially the wives of pastors. May you grow them as well. May they encourage their, their husbands as they walk alongside them that their marriage would be a beautiful witness to the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who prepared a bride for himself and made them shepherds over her. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.